Father, with all the prayer requests that we've already lifted up to you this morning and all the things in our minds, all the needs in our body, we take comfort in knowing you have known these things even before we raise them. In fact, Father, you know things we haven't raised at all. Needs that are still quiet in our hearts. Needs we don't even know we have as of yet, but will come soon enough. And if we know you have that kind of insight, then we know, Father, you have also preordained a plan, a response, an opportunity for us to learn, a trial or test by which we will grow, that you have good outcomes. Help us, Father, to understand that the definition of good is not ours, but yours. That what looks to be unbearable in the moment will be bearable in your strength and will bring us an opportunity to be blessed, though we may not see it yet. Thank you, Father, that as we endure and as we wait patiently, we may also have opportunity to learn and anticipate what is to come, that you do not ask us to wait in ignorance. You do not ask us to have patience without understanding, but you give us this time so that we may be prepared to serve you better, both here and in the kingdom to come. And I thank you, Father, that we have this opportunity to learn. Let the word before us be a lamp to our feet guiding us into all righteousness and give us a heart, Father, that is courageous enough to obey what we learn. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I can't resist counting. We're in our 103rd lesson in our Genesis study. We're going to study chapter 46, or most of it anyway, today. Joseph has summoned his father Jacob to leave the land of Canaan and to enter into Egypt in keeping with God's promises to his forefather, to Abraham. We still have five years of famine remaining in the land as of this moment in the story. And it's those five years of famine that will force Jacob's family to live in Egypt for a time. You know, the number five in Scripture is, like every number, a number that's packed with meaning in the way God uses it. And in the case of five, this is the number associated with grace. When you see the number five in Scripture, you should immediately think, grace. And certainly the five years that Jacob and his family will spend in Egypt in the midst of this terrible worldwide famine is evidently grace to that family. They're going to live in Goshen, a land that is the richest farmland of Egypt. It's going to supply their every need during this period in which they wait out the famine. But it's interesting also that five years is going to be just long enough For the people of Israel to establish a home in Egypt so that they will not leave for four generations. The two years of the famine was enough to get Jacob's family moving. But the additional five was the grace God extended to the family so that they would have reason to stay in Egypt, to become comfortable in Egypt. But as we looked at last week, leaving the land of Canaan is not easy for Jacob. Especially since the last time he stepped foot outside the promised land ended up being a lot longer trip than he anticipated. And as you're going to see today, the Lord moves Jacob's heart in this situation to reassure him that as he goes about leaving the land a second time, this time he's supposed to leave and it is the right thing for him to do. Then lastly, today, as the family leaves, we're going to read through an inventory, or I guess you'd say technically a census of those who are in the household of Jacob, of his family, as they leave the land. Let's start in chapter 46, verses 1 through 4. So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. 
God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. Well, once again, we notice that Moses addresses the main character as Israel. Jacob is being called Israel here. That reminds us that Jacob's actions are a reflection of the movement of faith in his heart, that God is prompting these responses. So it says Israel sets out for Egypt. Now, Jacob is departing from somewhere in central Canaan, and he's heading south, of course, toward Egypt. And if you take that route, if you look at a map, the southernmost settlement in Canaan, before you reach the border with Egypt, is Beersheba. So this is the last town that you encounter on your way out of Canaan as you head toward Egypt. And as Jacob reaches Beersheba, he stops. We might even say he hesitates. Because before he sets outside the land, Jacob wants to know that leaving is the right thing to do. That would be the fair assumption we could make about his motives. He initiates a conversation with the Lord, we're told, and it says he does so through a moment or through the actions of sacrifice. He sacrifices to the Lord. Now, what that means literally is that Jacob would have scoured the local landscape for rocks or boulders of a certain size, and he would have begun to pile them up until he had this flat or almost flat mound of rocks of one size or another, an altar, in other words. And remember, altars are always places of sacrifice. And then after he had piled up all the boulders, he would have taken a young goat, probably, He would have slit the throat of the goat. He would have drained the blood. He would have used the blood to sanctify the altar, to cleanse it. And then he would have built a fire on top of these boulders. And then he would have taken pieces of meat and the fat of the goat. And he would have placed it on the fire. And he would have burned it entirely, making a pleasing aroma to the Lord, Scripture says. He would have done all these things because the Bible says a sacrifice is required before men can commune, can have relationship with God, with the holy, perfect, living God. The Bible teaches us that men's sin is such an ever-present barrier to our relationship with God that it makes us an enemy of God. And therefore, men cannot please Him, much less make requests of Him or even hear from Him as long as that sinful barrier remains present. But the Bible also says that when an innocent is put in our place to receive that wrath that God has for sin, that then the wrath of God is appeased. The fancy word for that is propitiated. And because the wrath of God is appeased, then we can stand before the Lord, can approach him and worship and bring petition. Today, those of faith, those in the body of Christ, we have this never-ending opportunity to approach boldly, Scripture says, because the Lord Christ was that innocent sacrifice in our place. So he has already taken the role of sacrifice for the sake of giving us access to the Father. The wrath that God reserved for sin that deservedly would have come to us has been placed on Christ. And so now we are at peace with God. So it's important to understand That for you and I today in faith, no more such sacrifice is required. That means several things. I don't have to sacrifice anything for God in order to approach God. 
No one else has to sacrifice anything for me in order for me to approach God. No other Messiah has to come. No other animal has to die. There is no other sacrifice required. But in Jacob's day, the world still waited for that Messiah to come, for that sacrifice to be made. So how is someone like Jacob to stop here in Beersheba and talk to God about, are you sure you want me to go down? How is he to make that conversation begin? Well, the Lord has made available a temporary atonement, a method by which sacrifice can happen in a limited sense for the purpose of allowing that fellowship with men. It did not solve the problem of sin, but if you will, it opened up a window for a moment in which God could have wrath appeased sufficient to hear from men and to respond in kind, to have a moment of fellowship. But because it was temporary, it would have to happen over and over and over and over. And it never dealt with sin in a permanent way. We, on the other hand, have that permanent sacrifice in Christ. In a way, it's a curious thing that Jacob hesitates, sacrifices, and seeks the Lord in leaving Canaan. Why is that curious? Well, I want you to think about what he is facing in terms of his options right now. What are his options? Well, on the one hand, he could stay in Canaan, but Canaan is a dry land. It's a dead land. It has no water. It has a drought, no food. In fact, he's already been seeking food from Egypt and the people in the land are hostile and corrupt. His sons can't take wives from among them. The family is clearly in a bad situation. And then on top of all of that, Jacob just heard that his favorite son, the one he thought was dead, is alive. And ruling in Egypt. So why wouldn't he go to Egypt? Why wouldn't he be running to Egypt? Much less pausing and wondering if he should. Remember, this is the land God gave, not just to Jacob, but to his forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac. This is the inheritance that every Jewish man since Abraham has longed to receive. And the Lord's promise is to provide this land to Israel and the measure of faith in Israel, the testimony of faith in Israel has always been that they were willing to live as wanderers, proving to the outside world that they knew that their real inheritance was eternal. Yet, nevertheless, to maintain a presence in the land so that people understood where they kept their faith. Their faith was on the place and the promises of God. Jacob, if you remember, he worked 20 years in Laban's care, just for the opportunity to get back to Canaan. So while it's true that there's not much there for him now, his faith in God's promises are so strong that he would actually hesitate to leave this land for the chance to go down into a better place and see Joseph. This is a man who is thinking about the promises God has given him. It's only natural for him to cling to a life that he knew, believing that it was the thing God wanted for him. But, you know, for the very same reason, you and I, in the work and in the world we have today, we, I think, have a similar tendency. In fact, all men, I think, have a similar tendency to hold on too long or too tight to something or to some direction in life because it came from God or it was a blessing of God or it was an instruction of God. We cling to it on that basis, but we forget to check back in. It can be a possession it can be a relationship. It can be a lifestyle. For men, often it's a job. It can be a church. 
It's something that the Lord gave us that we gladly received. But now perhaps the time has come to let it go also by God's decree. And in that we face a new test, a new test of obedience, because sometimes we disobey the Lord by rejecting the opportunities or the blessings he brings us because we just prefer to do it our own way or to do our own thing or to have what we want instead because we've grown comfortable with our own plans. So there's a form of disobedience that we all know that is the rejecting of what God offers before we have it. But there's also a situation in which we can disobey the Lord by not letting go of something that he himself gave us but has now given us direction to leave behind. Think of some of the greatest tragedies in Scripture that come in this way. Remember Saul? His chief mistake was not recognizing that his time as Israel's king had come to an end because of his sin of idolatry. Jonah? Jonah got to spend quality time inside a large fish because he would not turn and go to Nineveh when God told him to preach the gospel to Israel's enemies. And then here you see the Lord asking Jacob to give up his presence in the land because it suited God's purposes that he do so, even though that is the land God told him to go to in the first place. And I think God routinely works in this way. He routinely acts to give and then to take away, to test and reveal our hearts while serving his eternal purposes in the process. Is there a better example than Job in all of this? How often does Job become the perfect example of every story or every lesson of scripture look at his life god gave him everything a man could want in this life he had wealth he had family he had health he had reputation he had power and then in a moment the lord allows satan to just take it all away all of it everything i just listed gone Job, we know, had been a man to praise and to follow obediently when he had all of those good things. In fact, that was the impetus for Satan coming before God and saying, oh, sure, Job does what you want because you give him everything. And so the test became, what would Job do when it all went away? In the end, this is a question of obedience, of following God. He is the master. We are the slaves. He says, jump. We say, How high, right, as the saying goes. He leads, we follow. He gives, we receive gladly. He takes, and we praise him nonetheless. When you hold on to things that the Lord has determined have to be removed for some greater purpose in your life, when you hold on, when you tell him, no, you can't take it from me because you gave it to me, we're replacing his sovereignty with our own. And that's not even the real tragedy. Because the real tragedy is what happens if you succeed in resisting him in that way. Because if you persist in resisting his will, when the time comes to give up that thing or to go in that new direction, you're only succeeding in being distracted by your own selfish pursuits. Rather than serving God, you serve yourself. That's the real tragedy. Imagine some of the stories I just gave out of Scripture. What if Jonah had not gone to Nineveh? What if Saul had left the role as king when he was told to? And what if Jacob didn't leave the land? If Jacob were to cling to the promised land rather than going to Egypt, what we know is this. He would have been left with a dusty, 
polluted, corrupt land without God's blessing and provision, because God would have not been pleased with his disobedience, and he would have died there. He never would have seen Joseph. And I can assure you that Israel would have still found its way into Egypt. It still would have been according to God's will, and the plan of God would not have been thwarted by Jacob's disobedience. But Jacob, yeah, he would have lost something. So Jacob stops, and he calls upon the Lord. And he wants a confirmation. I really like what he does here. And it's not simply for the very fact that he's willing to seek confirmation so that he can do the right thing. That's true and that's good. But I really like the fact of not that he asks, but who he asks. Who does he ask for advice? Who does he go to to find out if he's doing the right thing? He goes to the Lord. And then it says he waits for an answer. Because the answer comes in a night vision. He's gone to bed. He's sacrificed. He asked. And then he says, I'm sitting put until I get my answer. And it came in a dream. You know, that's not fashionable today. It's not fashionable. It's not fashionable in the church even. It's just a feature of normal human experience to be faced with dilemmas and to have questions and to ponder. What do I do? Do I do this? Do I do that? That's natural. Everyone does that. And of course, in the world at large, the unbelieving world... They have whole industries devoted to telling people what to do or what not to do in any given situation. They've got psychic hotlines. They've got TV psychologists on talk shows. They've got advice columns in women's magazines. They've got the Internet. They've got blogs. They've got everything. And so do we if we want to use them. But the trend is also in the church, and that's the part that that I think we need to concern ourselves with. Because in the Christian culture, there's books. There are radio programs, there are podcasts, I have some for that matter. There are friends, there are families, there are home groups, there's the elders, there's the pastor. And these resources often can be very good and useful. That's not the problem in and of itself. None of them, though, can substitute for the counsel of the Lord. That's the problem. They're icing on a cake, but the cake... (laughs) The the source of what we need is the Lord himself. And you get that in principally two ways, not exclusively, but principally in two ways, personal prayer and study in the word. That the revelation of God to his church is principally through the counsel of the spirit in prayer and through the counsel of the spirit through the word of God. And they will never contradict so that if you feel something in your prayer life that's contrary to the scriptures, you can be assured something in your prayer life is not right. Because it will never contradict God's word. But that's the source. That is the principal means by which God has given the church to know his will. So while I would encourage you to seek godly counsel and to read up on the topics of your life and to to go to the sources of, of support that you may have, don't let any of that substitute for getting down on your knees or going to the word of God and asking the Lord, what do I do next? And don't be afraid to sit down for a while and wait for the answer. And by a while, I mean a while. Unless there's something forcing your deadline, let God speak. And I think for the most part, every Christian who's walked in this walk for very long has a story or two about moments in their life when they came to that decision and they had to stop and receive counsel and ponder. And if they waited long enough, the answer just smacked them upside the head. Doors closed, doors opened, things aligned, things came into place. And next thing you know, it all made sense. But if you had acted a day sooner, you would have missed it. We all know that feeling. Let's seek for that kind of assurance. So in response to his doubts, he asks, and then the Lord appears. This is the sixth time, if you're counting, that the Lord has come and spoken to Jacob. And it comes, as I said, in a night vision. And when it comes, it begins with Jacob 
Jacob. Not Israel, Israel, Jacob, Jacob. The passage begins with Israel, but God himself addresses him as Jacob. And that would seem to indicate that he's living in the flesh again here, at least for the moment, in these doubts. It's not that it was wrong that he asked. I think he's suggesting to Jacob, your fears and your concerns are flesh-based, not spirit-based. You don't have reason to fear. He begins by saying, I am God. I am the God of your father. Not fathers. Father. Isaac, in other words. I am the God of your father. Now, at this point in the history of Jacob's life, it's been 10 years since Isaac died. So dad's gone. Long gone. 10 years in the grave. But yet the, the living God calls himself the God of Isaac, a man who is dead. Which proves to us that these men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all those who have died in faith, are not truly dead. God is not the God of dead people. He is the God of the living. As Jesus said to the Pharisees in Luke 20, 37 and 38, Jesus responding to the Sadducees who did not believe in resurrection and tried to accuse him of believing in something that was false. This is what Jesus said to them. He said that the dead are raised. Well, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush where he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now that's a reference to when the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And that's what the Lord said to Moses when he described himself. But those three men have been dead, long dead, by the time that that moment occurred. And then the next thing Jesus says in verse 38, he says, Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So even in the way the Lord identified himself to Jacob, what's he saying to Jacob? I'm the one who can handle this problem for you. If you leave the land and you die in Egypt as God, that's not a barrier to me. That has no bearing on whether or not I can keep my promise to you to bring you back and give you this inheritance. Because I will do so, but you will see it in a resurrected form. That's the essence of what he means when he says, I'm the God of a dead man. Now, on the other hand, this will be the last time Jacob sees the promised land this side of heaven. He will die in Egypt. And that's, of course, what the Lord implies. And he says also, you will become a great nation while you are in Egypt. You don't have to fear that if you go into Egypt, you'll be assimilated and disappear into the culture. You're going to prosper. You're going to incubate. You're going to grow. You're never going to lose your identity. And even if death comes and takes you, as it will, that doesn't stop my plan. You'll be back. In the end, when he dies, Jacob will be entombed in Egypt, but he doesn't remain there. When we get to Genesis chapter 50 in a few months, that's a joke, the Lord is going to do exactly as he promises here. He will bring him back out. He will actually be taken by Joseph out of Egypt and buried back in Canaan. But that's only the first way in which God means this. When he says, you will come back into the land. It speaks of both his physical body being buried, but it also speaks to the future when Jacob is resurrected and returned to the land in a living form to occupy it as his inheritance, just like his fathers before him were promised. So having been assured that leaving Egypt was the right thing to do, Jacob continues down into Egypt, verses 5 through 7. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt. Jacob and all his descendants with him, 
his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Well, we can just simply note a couple things here. It's not terribly difficult to follow. Jacob leaves. He goes to Egypt. He brings his whole family with him. And what follows next from that introduction is a census, essentially, of the family of Jacob. Now, a couple of things we need to know before we look at it. First, it's a partial census. In the earlier verses I just read, it's clear that no one is being left behind. Everyone is going with him. But in the census that follows, in this short little pseudo-genealogy, we won't see all of them mentioned, and particularly the women. You'll see only the men mentioned with a couple of exceptions. That's not unusual in Scripture, but in this case, the only women that are mentioned have some notoriety of their own. But otherwise, it's just the men. And so at the end of this passage of names, we're going to get a total count, and we'll talk about it there. But let's read through chapters 46, 8 through 27. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his sons, who went to Egypt. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Herzan, Carmai. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel and Jamin, and Ohad and Jachin and Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur and Onan and Shelah and Perez and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Herzan and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tolal, Pubah, and Lob, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Zered, and Elan, and Jaliel. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padamaram, with his daughter Dinah. All his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, and Haggai, Shunai, and Erzban, Erai, and Eredai, and Erelai. The sons of Asher, Emnah, Ishva, Ishvi, Beriah, and their sister Sarah, and the sons of Beriah, Heber, and Malachiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to his daughter, Leah, and she bore to Jacob these 16 persons. The sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, and Joseph, and Benjamin. Now to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin, Belah and Becher, Ashbel, Gerah, and Nahaman, Ehai and Rosh, Mupim and Hupim and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob. There were 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, and the sons of Naphtali, Jazael, Gunin, Jazer, Shelim. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Rachel, and she bore these to Jacob. There were seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. And all the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. Well, first, as we consider all these names, I want you to remember it's only been 39 years, 39 years since Jacob left Laban's household. And when he did that, he had four wives and he had 11 sons at that time. And now, clearly, 39 years later, he has this huge extended family. 39 years might sound like a long time, but I challenge you to find any family that has grown from the size that Jacob had in Laban's household to this point in only 39 years. 
It's rather remarkable. It shows us that God is, in fact, blessing Israel to be fruitful as he promised to do so. And although we don't have to go through every name in the list, there are a few nuggets that are interesting as we go through this genealogy. First, I want you to notice the sons of Judah include mention of those two dead sons, Ur and Onan, who were born of that Canaanite wife that started the whole problem that resulted in the need for them to be in Egypt in the first place. And we don't count them in this genealogy or in this list. They're not part of the 70. They're just there for the record. And then the other two sons that you see listed under Judah's name are the two twins that were born from his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And they actually become the seed of Judah. In fact, Perez is the son holding the seed promise, which moves forward from there. So that's the first thing I think is worth noting. The second thing is, I want you to notice that besides Judah, there is another son of Jacob who we are told takes a Canaanite wife. That's Simeon. At least one of his wives was Canaanite. That reminds us, again, that if they did not leave this land, eventually this entire family is going to succumb to marrying into the culture and to be absorbed. It reinforces for us the importance of them getting out of town and getting down into Egypt. So the Lord knew they had to do this. Shua is the one of the Canaanite. The Shuaites do not appear in the record of Scripture at any point after these genealogies, which would suggest to me that they are falling under the curse of the Canaanites, as you would expect, and they cease to exist. The third thing worth noting is that Benjamin has ten sons. Now, why is that interesting? Because there's some other guys with more. But Benjamin, at this point, is 25 years old. And he has ten sons. Now, there's probably only one way that could happen. He could have had octuplets followed by twins. That's similar to the way Jacob ended up with so many sons so quickly as well. He had to have multiple wives probably to do this. Because Jacob fathered 11 sons in a very short period of time through four women. And if you're going to get 10 sons and you're only 25, you either start when you're 12, which I don't think is what he did, or you start with more than one wife. The last thing we want to observe, and really the main point as we finish, I want you to consider the grand totals that are given at the end. All of those who are Jacob's descendants who came from Canaan into Egypt were 66. Now that description, the descendants of Jacob who came from Canaan, that description would have to exclude Jacob. He's not a descendant of himself. It excluded all the wives. And it would have to, by definition... Exclude those who were already in Egypt. That would mean Joseph, who was already in Egypt, and Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, who were already in Egypt. So if I take out Jacob, Joseph, and two more sons, there's four. Seventy minus four is sixty-six. So there's your sixty-six, the descendants of Jacob who came in from Canaan. And but then we're told that the entire household of Jacob is seventy. Well, now we're talking about everyone who is of the household. That would include Jacob himself. It's his household. And then his sons, including Joseph, and all his grandsons, all his granddaughters, period. All of his household, still not counting the wives, was 70. So later in Acts chapter 7, we hear Stephen recounting the history of Israel. And when he reaches the story of Jacob entering into Egypt, he says that Jacob's household in Egypt was 75, but that's actually not too hard to understand. When Stephen's talking about the household, he's not talking about who came in or who was already there. He said all of those who were of Jacob's household were 75. There were 
five more people who came into life while Jacob was still living in the land. And those five were Joseph's grandchildren. Manasseh and Ephraim between them had five kids. And those extra five were there when Jacob was still alive. So the big question, the main question is, why do we care? I mean, it's interesting, I guess. But really, why make such a big deal over the number? Well, there's two answers. First, when the nation leaves the land, if you jump forward into the book of Exodus and you look at what this nation looks like as they leave the land and they prepare to go out into the wilderness, the scriptures tell us that just the men over age 20, just that group, add up to over 600,000 men. 600,000. In only three generations, they go from 70 to 600,000. That is exponential growth. It goes beyond any normal growth rate you would expect. They become one of the most numerous nations on earth. Because when you count all the women and the babies with that, you're somewhere near 2 million people. 70, 2 million. Three generations. Grandpa to dad to son. You don't explain that. Not through human agency, not through normal reproduction. In fact, if you were to look at this from a purely human point of view, you would not only have not expected that kind of growth, you would have expected them to become Egyptian. You wouldn't have expected a nation to grow inside another nation. Not like this. That leads us to the second conclusion. The number 70 in Scripture is another one of those numbers packed with meaning. In fact, 70 appears all over the place in Scripture, both Old and New Testament. And every time you see the number 70, it's intended to communicate a very certain meaning in Scripture. It means the Lord's sovereign purpose accomplished through the works of men. The sovereign will of God working through the works of men. Let me give you some simple examples. When Joseph dies, Egypt's going to mourn for 70 days. When Moses is trying to rule over the people in the desert, God, through his father-in-law, directs him to appoint 70 elders over Israel. And forevermore, there were 70 elders in Israel. The Lord selected those 70 elders later to prophesy in the wilderness. Seventy years were appointed for Israel to be in captivity after they disobeyed the old covenant and they were sent up into Babylon. Seventy years. Later, when the Hebrew text was translated into Greek, and formed the Septuagint. Do you know how many men of Israel were appointed to the task of creating that translation? One guess. Seventy. And the ruling council of Israel in the day Jesus was put to death on the cross, that Sanhedrin consisted of exactly how many men? Seventy. These numbers are literal. There was truly 70 men. There were truly 70 days. There were truly 70 years. But the fact that God allowed it to be that number was his way of communicating to us You may think of this as just ordinary human history and happenstance and chance and meaningless whatever. But if you understand the number, then you see my fingerprints on that activity, on that outcome, on that history. And you know I'm the one doing it. So there would be 70 people to enter Israel so that we would know without a question of a doubt that this is the Lord bringing his people where he wants them to be and doing it for a purpose he has ordained. There's nothing coincidence about it. So the answer to how did Israel grow so big so fast? God. The answer to why they're in Egypt? God. And pretty much every question of the Bible has that answer. But in a specific sense, God at work through men to accomplish his purposes. 
So Jacob is not taking any chances with his inheritance here. He's ensuring it. Israel's not in danger of being swallowed up. One day they're going to leave with the best of Egypt. And God's plan is not at risk. It's going exactly according to plan. Next week we're going to look at Jacob's encounter with Pharaoh at the end of this chapter, but it's really going to be part of a larger conversation that pulls us well into chapter 47 next week. So I'm saving it as part of that teaching. Let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can see you at work in this wonderful way and recognize your sovereignty both through the circumstances of Scripture and even through small things like the numbers you choose. What I really hope, Father, is that you would give me and all who hear this the confidence to see that same work in our own lives when we face dilemmas, when we have confusion and doubt, when we have to make choices. I pray that you would be talking to us just as clearly that you are sovereign, that you have set us on a path and that you have given us options, but one is the option of faith and that we would choose it, trusting in you, whatever the situation, whatever the decision may be. I pray for our baptism, Father, that's coming up. I pray that hearts would be moved and men and women would step forward for the opportunity to profess their faith publicly. And thank you for the chance we have to do this and celebrate with them. I pray for all the activities we have this summer, that you would be with us as a church and help us conduct ourselves in a Christ-like way while serving you. Thank you, Father. We may go into a time of communion this morning. Let us reflect upon the sacrifice that was made so that we might have the relationship we do. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.